Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Again, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Just as we have uh, sung here about the longing for uh, the long-awaited Messiah to come, uh, we find in this passage that John the Baptist is longing for that as well. And his hope uh, is that Jesus is the Christ. But as we see in this passage, and as we will see as we go through it, uh, John is beginning to have doubts, beginning to have uncertainties. And so he sends out his disciples Uh, to ask of Jesus if He indeed is uh, the one who is to come, or if John should look for another. This is the Word of God. Listen to it. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me." Let us pray. Our gracious God, we recognize the truth of what You have said in Your Word, that the Lord Jesus Christ is an offense. He is an offense to sinful minds and sinful hearts. And yet we pray, dear Lord, that this morning we would not be offended by Him. Though He may cause us to stumble, though we may at times have doubts, we pray, dear Lord, that rather than be offended, we would be blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that You would teach us, that You would instruct us, and that You would give us the hope that You gave John the Baptist as he sat in that prison cell. We pray, Lord, that You would indeed build us up in our faith in Christ as we hear Your Word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, if you've been with us for some time, we have just completed a chapter. We've just completed chapter 10 uh, last week. A chapter in which Jesus talked at great length about the persecution that would come to His disciples as He sends them out. As He sends them out into uh, the world, and specifically out into Israel, out into Judea, to preach the gospel. He says to them, as you go out in my name, you will be persecuted for my sake. And so it is within this context, you remember the, uh, the ancient manuscripts in the Greek and Hebrew didn't have chapter divisions. They didn't have uh, headings at the start of different sections. This is the context in which we read our passage this morning. John the Baptist is mentioned here in this passage for the first time since Jesus heard that he had been imprisoned back in chapter 4, verse 12. And it is from prison that John sends his disciples to Jesus. Now Matthew tells us in chapter 14 that John was imprisoned because he had been very bold in speaking to Herod. 
And he told Herod that what he was doing in marrying uh, his brother's wife, and marrying who was in fact his niece, that this was unlawful. And so Herod became angry, and he threw John in prison. He had him imprisoned. Uh, the, the, the Jewish historian, ancient historian Josephus says that he was imprisoned in a place about five miles east of the Dead Sea, in a very hot, uh, arid place. And so John has been in this prison cell for some time now. Now John the Baptist, I think we've mentioned this before, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And next week, as we consider uh, the next passage in chapter 11, you'll see, we'll, we'll read that Jesus said in uh, chapter 11, verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Jesus is saying there that John was, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He marked the end of that era, of the Old Testament period. But we'll also learn, as we consider the passage next week, that John was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus says in verse 11 of this chapter, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so John, as a prophet of the Lord, as a fiery Old Testament prophet, he takes a stand for God. He takes a stand for the law of God. He tells Herod, what you are doing is wrong. And the thanks he gets for taking this stand is persecution. John the Baptist is being persecuted in the way that Jesus said his followers would be persecuted. John the Baptist is thrown in prison. He had been taken out of the ministry. His ministry that he was conducting there at the Jordan River. And he was isolated from the crowds of people who had been coming to him. Hordes of people coming to John to receive his baptism. But John was keeping up with the one that he had baptized. He was aware of what Jesus was doing. He was aware of what He was teaching. He had His disciples coming to Him and giving Him information on this one who He had anointed. The one about whom He had said in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, But He who is coming after Me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. John was speaking about Jesus here. He was speaking about the Messiah. But John is keeping tabs on Jesus. He wants to know about his ministry, his activity. The reports were coming to John in prison, as 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2 says. And when John heard about these deeds, he sent his disciples to Jesus to question him. It was based on what John had heard about Jesus. It was based, these doubts that John had were based on, on what he had heard. Something did not quite mesh with John's expectations for the Messiah. But notice that even though John doubted who Jesus is, instead of rebuking him, instead of rebuking John for his doubts, Jesus gently reminded him of all that the Old Testament prophecies said about him. He reminded him that these prophecies were being fulfilled by Jesus even now. As we consider these six verses, I would ask you to, to think about this. In the face of John's doubt, Jesus reminds him of who he is and what he has done. And he gives that same assurance to everyone who believes. Jesus, in the face of John's doubts, Jesus reminds him of who he is and what he has done. And he gives that same assurance 
to everyone who believes in Him. Well, I've divided this passage into two sections, verses 1 to 3, which I've titled Doubt, and verses 4 to 6, which I've titled Proof. Again, 1 to 3, Doubt, 4 to 6, Proof. It's very simple, very easy outline this morning. Well, verse 1 says that after Jesus had finished instructing His disciples, He moved on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, a question might arise in your mind. What, is it, what does He mean by their cities? Who is, whose cities are their cities? It's not clear. It seems possible that it was, in fact, the disciples' cities. The, disciple, the cities to which Jesus was sending the disciples. Uh, perhaps Jesus was, was intending to go and to prepare the way for His own disciples to go and minister there in later times. But the fact is that after a period of instruction, a period of teaching of His disciples, Jesus is back to the work of preaching and teaching. This ministry that He does as He goes around Galilee. And verses 2-3 two, two to three say this, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? As we've noticed, it wasn't a lack of information about Jesus' activities that caused John to have doubt. It was knowledge of his activities that made John question whether Jesus was in fact the Messiah. John was the man who had anointed him, who he, who he, he, had, he had baptized him in the river Jordan. He witnessed the dove descend on Jesus. He heard the voice of the Lord God Almighty say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet after a certain amount of time, an unspecified amount of time in prison, John is beginning to wonder what's going on here. Well, James Boyce points out in his commentary that many prominent commentators have argued that John was, in fact, not doubting Jesus. Uh, there were many along the Augustine, Beza, Calvin. Many people have said, no, in fact, John was not doubting here. And they say that John was asking this question of Jesus for the benefit, benefit of his disciples who were doubting. And that may well be the case, but Boyce gives three good reasons why John might have been experiencing doubt. And I just want to go through those uh, with you this morning because I think they're helpful. First, John was in prison. <laughs> that alone is enough to make a person doubt. Uh, doubt God. Doubt God's plan for them. Doubt His goodness. Charles Spurgeon said of John's imprisonment, dark thoughts may come to the bravest when pent up in a narrow cell. So first, John was in prison. Second, Boy says he was emotionally drained. The family of Herod, the household of Herod, was renowned in this area. Renowned within uh, the Eastern Roman Empire with their, with their treachery, their intrigue, the murders that took place. John undoubtedly knew that his time was coming. He saw what was taking place in this household. And so he was probably emotionally drained. Third, Jesus wasn't living up to John's expectations or prophecies. And this is really the big one. Everyone expected the Messiah. When He came, all of the Jews expected the Messiah. When He came, to come in and usher a, a new kingdom, a, a literal physical kingdom in Israel. To reestablish this nation. To throw off the bonds of Rome. To cast uh, the Romans asunder. And John probably uh, was like the rest of his fellow Jews in this way. He expected Jesus to come in and to reestablish the throne of David. Literally, physically, 
in Jerusalem. But this wasn't happening. And what's more, John himself, as you know, I just read his prophecy about uh, the Messiah. John was expecting the Messiah to come in and bring judgment on the house of Israel. He was expecting Jesus to come in with that winnowing fork and to cleanse the temple. John, it can safely be assumed, had been eagerly getting these reports from his disciples, watching and waiting for Jesus to clearly prove that he was the Messiah. But to his own thinking, John had not gotten the proof that he needed. And so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus. Now we need to maintain something here. It wasn't so much that John's expectations of Jesus were wrong, especially as far as the judgment, bringing judgment to the house of Israel. It wasn't so much that they were wrong, they were simply incomplete. John had been given a specific message to prophesy, and he expected uh, Jesus, if he was the Messiah, to fulfill these prophecies, these prophecies of judgment. But it seems as though John was forgetting about the other, the older prophecies of the Messiah that spoke of the ministries that the Messiah had to carry out. And so one commentator has put it this way, John had preached that the coming one would baptize in the spirit and fire, casting the wicked into a furnace of fire. John's expectations about the Messiah's future role were right. But John did not know that Jesus had another mission before the coming judgment. Before the coming judgment, Jesus' mission was mercy. Jesus came to to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. So what John was given to prophesy about the judgment the Messiah would bring, he didn't realize would only be fulfilled after Jesus' earthly ministry was finished. Now it is true, we can't deny it, we must not overlook the fact that Jesus gave a foretaste of His judgment, the impending judgment on the house of Israel, when He fashioned that whip out of the cords and He went into the temple and He drove out the vendors and the money changers. This is a taste, a foretaste of the judgment that is to come on the earth, and specifically on the house of Israel. But His full judgment would not come until specific other messianic ministries had been carried out. Now it might be difficult for some people to think that a powerful prophet like John could have doubts. How is this possible? He's receiving, he's got a direct connection to God. How could he have doubts? But if you're thinking this, You only have to look at the prophets of the Old Testament to recognize that this is a quite common occurrence in the Old Testament among prophets. Look to Elijah. This is the prophet with whom Jesus identifies John later in this chapter. You'll see that that Elijah had his doubts. In 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 4, uh, Elijah asked God to take his life when Jezebel was pursuing him after, after this great victory that Elijah had witnessed over these prophets of Baal, these prophets that Jezebel had brought into Israel. Elijah had just seen this great victory. The, the sacrifice on the altar had been burned up by the fire of the Lord. And yet just a few verses later, Elijah is terrified of this woman, terrified of the damage she might do. And so he asks for God to take him because he's fearful, because he has doubts about God. Prophets of God are not immune to doubts. And if they are not immune, neither are you, and neither am I. If you are a Christian, 
And if you are breathing, you will have doubts from time to time. And some people will have more doubts than others. It is not a sin to ask a question or to have doubt. In fact, Jesus welcomes investigation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He has nothing to hide from you. Jesus has no fear that you will uncover some deep deep secret that will prove that He's wrong, that He wasn't who He said He is. Thomas said that he would never believe that Jesus uh, had risen from the dead unless he put his fingers in the nail holes in Jesus' hands. Unless he put his hand in the hole that the spear had made in Jesus' side. He would never believe. And so eight days later, when Jesus appeared to Thomas, what did he say? Here are my hands. Put your fingers in. Here's my side. Put your fingers in. And, And Thomas didn't need to do it. Jesus welcomes investigation. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. It is not a sin to have doubts. What is a sin? It's to react to those doubts in unbelief. To react to those doubts in such a way that you flee God rather than embrace Him and seek Him out in His Word. Jesus welcomes your honest questions. He welcomes your honest doubts. And in the Bible, He's given all of the answers that you need. All you have to do is trust Jesus and take Him at His word. Believe that He is indeed the one that God has sent. Let's look now at verses 4 to 6. Proof. John, through his disciples, asked Jesus if He was the one. If He was the one who was to come. And Jesus answered John in verses 4 to 6 saying this, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If John was looking for a short, concise answer, he did not get it. Jesus knew that a simple yes would not suffice for John's questions. And so what does Jesus do? He offers him the proof. He offers him the proof of what he is doing, of the signs that he is performing. He offers him the proof not only of that, but of the Old Testament prophecies about himself. He commanded John's disciples to tell him what they had seen and heard. And then in verses 5 and 6, he quotes a string of passages from the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, which says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now these are verses uh, uh, in Isaiah 35 come right after God has said, uh, in verses 2 and 4, that they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Jesus references Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, which say, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. 
What is Jesus doing by quoting these verses? What is Jesus doing by pointing to what he is doing? Jesus is saying to John, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. These are all spoken of the Messiah. These are prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah some five, six, seven hundred years before Jesus came. And they have all been fulfilled in me. According to Spurgeon again, he says the cures were wrought. With, they were all beneficent, superhuman, and of a kind foretold by the prophets as signaling the coming of Messiah. The proof was cumulative. The argument increased in power. Jesus is laying his case. He's making his case. One argument after another after another. And he's saying to John, here is all you need. He gives to John the proof that he needs to overcome his doubts. And for John, a man of God, a prophet of God, this would indeed have been sufficient. We don't get uh, John's response to this. We don't know exactly how John reacted, but he is a true prophet of the Lord. And to be reminded of one of his fellow prophets, Isaiah, John will react uh, in the way that you and I would expect him to react which is in faith, believing what Jesus has said, believing who Jesus is. John knew exactly the passages to which Jesus was pointing as having been fulfilled by him. John had focused on these prophecies about the Messiah, including his own, that promised judgment. John knew these things. And so Jesus gently reminds John that his mercy would come first, that his, his judgment would surely come. And so the eye and the ear witness testimony of John's disciples about all that Jesus had said and the signs that he had performed would have been enough for John to embrace this in faith and to know for sure that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Now it is to the great discredit of modern man that the miraculous signs that were proof for John are now stumbling blocks for us. To the modern scientific mind, the miracles are events that must have a natural uh, reason for occurring, a natural explanation. And so we hear uh, these uh, uh, understandings, these interpretations of what has taken place in Jesus' miracles. Jesus couldn't have walked on water, they say. He must have been walking in some sort of, on some sort of land bridge that was just under the surface of the water. Jesus could not have miraculously healed all those who were sick. He must have known some sort of primitive medicine that was unknown to the Israelites, that enabled him to heal those people. But it is precisely because the miracles stand without scientific explanation that they prove that Jesus is God. It is precisely for this reason that we can know that Jesus is the Messiah. God does not need a natural scientific explanation for what he does. Does that not mean that science can't help us in understanding certain things? But God will work outside of nature, against nature at times, to make His purposes come to pass. And so Jesus was doing things. He was restoring sight to the blind. He was healing lepers. He was raising people from the dead. He was doing things that only God could do. And on top of that, these were exactly the things that were prophesied hundreds of years before. 
But if it's not the miracles that the skeptics of Jesus deny today, it will be something else. Because Jesus is inherently offensive. And this is what verse 6 alludes to. Verse 6 says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It is not just modern man who is offended by Jesus. It is postmodern man. It is pre-modern man. It is ancient man. Sinful human beings will always be offended by Jesus Christ. Jesus is offensive to sinful human beings, to sinners like we are, because he says to everyone who is confronted with him, you are sinful and wretched and you can't do anything about it. But if you repent and believe in me, I will make you as white as snow and I will free you from your guilt. Jesus is offensive to people because He tells us that our sins are far worse than we ever thought possible. That a sinner might be offended by Jesus, but you can rest assured that God is far more offended by the sinner. And so Jesus says, Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Those who aren't offended by Jesus are blessed because He became the offense for them. He became the offense for you. He became offensive to His Father. When He took on your sins and my sins and bore them on the cross. You see, our sins are far worse than we ever thought possible. But God's grace is far better than we can ever imagine. If you repent of your sins, if you believe in Jesus Christ, As the long-awaited Messiah, you will know this grace. You will have all the proof that you need. You will no longer be an offense to a holy God. This is the promise that we have in Scripture. This is the promise that Jesus fulfilled and that He points to when He speaks to doubting John the Baptist. Now, you and I, we may not be suffering persecution like John did. We may not be thrown in prison. Although there are many Christians today, right this moment, who are sitting in a prison cell because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We may not be suffering in this way, but there's no guarantee that we won't suffer in this way in the future. But just because we're not suffering persecution, it does not mean that you or I will not have doubts. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed with a sense of sin and guilt that we begin to doubt God. We begin to doubt that He can do what He says He is doing by His Spirit. That He can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where we feel like we are drowning. Our doubts can become a prison to us. At those times it is very easy to doubt God. We think, is God really good? Can Jesus really save me from my sins? Is He ever going to deliver me from this pernicious sin that I've dealt with for years? Or we wonder, how on earth am I going to dig myself out of this situation? You name it, whatever it is. In those moments, we forget about the mighty deeds of God recorded in Scripture. In those moments, we forget about the hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ when He lived and walked on the earth. We forget about the powerful signs that Christ performed as proof that He is the Messiah. 
Jesus welcomes honest doubts. He welcomes honest questions. And just as He answered John the Baptist's doubts, He will answer yours. You see, Jesus will say in the passage that we'll study next week, that we'll look at next week, that as great as John the Baptist is, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. How can Jesus say such a thing? Because you who are redeemed in Christ Jesus, you who have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, have Christ's Spirit living in your hearts. You have the fullness of God's revelation of Himself in the Bible. You have it right here before you. This is something that John the Baptist did not have. While the Spirit of God came upon John and he was enabled to prophesy, the Spirit of God did not live in his hearts the way he lives in your hearts. You have these things, these amazing gifts. And by his Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, he will direct you. He will send you to those passages of Scripture. He will enable... How many times have you had a a Word of God, the Word of God preached to you at just the right moment, just the thing you needed to hear? Just the thing that enabled you to overcome those doubts that you had. This is the way the Spirit works. He will direct you to those places in Scripture that give you the answers to the questions that you have. It may not happen according to your time frame. But God will answer your questions. He's put it for you right here in His Word. Jesus is not afraid of the tough questions. He isn't afraid that he won't know the answers or that he'll be exposed as a fraud because Jesus is the truth. And that truth is spelled with a capital T. Blessed is the one who is not offended by the truth. Let us come before the Lord who is the truth in prayer. Our most gracious and holy God, we come to you this morning. We come to You, Lord, as those who are weak and feeble in our faith. We come, Lord, as those who are at times challenged by questions that come up. Challenged even by the sin of our own hearts. And so we do from time to time. Even now, many of us have doubts. We pray, dear Lord, that we would not turn away from You, but that we would come to You with our doubts. That we would lay them at Your feet that You would enable us to trust that You can answer the doubts that reside in our hearts. But we pray, Lord, that even as we may doubt, You would enable us by Your Spirit to continue to praise You and worship You, to glorify Your holy name, and to live lives, Lord, that are in perfect obedience to Your commandments. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.